Loss helps us define our lives. By allowing our grief to matter, we discover our own strengths and embrace our authentic selves. Welcome to Good Grief with your host, Cheryl Jones. Get ready to be inspired, to create a deeper life, to make your time on Earth much more meaningful. Now, here is Cheryl Jones. Hello, I'm your host, Cheryl Jones, and I want to welcome you to Good Grief, where we talk each week about the transformations that can come from loss. Today, I'm talking with Joanda Parker. Joanda is the founder and CEO of Hope and Healing Corporation, which is a 501c3 organization serving the community and marginalized aspects of society through humanitarian efforts. Inspired by her own childhood struggles, Joanda's written volume one of her autobiography, It Only Hurts When I Can't Run. The book tells of the traumatic experiences she encountered in her childhood and the start of her healing. And she's in the process of completing other books subsequent to that that speak to the nature of women's issues, hope and healing, protecting our young, and emotional wholeness. Joanda holds a Master's of Divinity from Asbury Theological Seminary and currently pastors two congregations. She's a proud mother of her newborn baby girl, Adira, and wife of Dr. Elvin J. Parker III. Joanda, welcome. Thank you, Cheryl. Thank you for having me. I'm, I'm happy to have you. I want to start with a paragraph from the introduction to your book because I think it really kind of set the tone for me in reading your story. Um, the book, It Only Hurts When I Can't Run. Without my past, there would not be a today. And without running, I might not have survived my past. I did stop running, though. And because I did, today I'm helping others who are running to survive the pain in their lives. This this really spoke to me, of course, because I think it's in in facing our traumas that we that we can go in the direction of healing. But I wonder if you could share a little bit about what you were running from and how you were trying to run. Just share a bit of your story with the listeners. Okay, certainly. I think how I could define the running part of it, um, it's in, in layers. First of all, I wanted to run away from my reality. And my reality... Uh, in my childhood is that I was living in the foster care system. I had been separated from my mother. I absolutely uh, absolutely adored and loved my mother but did not understand her addiction. And then when I found out um, that she was addicted to, first of all, prescriptions and then illegal drugs, um, it was a lot of shame that went with that. So I wanted to run away from the reality that I did not have what I would say the ideal life of a childhood, the ones that we mm-hmm. read about in the book. I wanted the mother and the father and the dog and the cat and um, good schools and all of that. So my reality was totally different, going from foster care to foster care um, systems, people I knew primarily, but still in the system, and then understanding that my mother could not actually mother me like she had in my early, early childhood. 
So I wanted to run away from that. And then um, as I began to experience the levels of abuse in every aspect, um, I wanted to run away from those images, from the thoughts, from the feelings of insecurity that I had, of worthlessness, not being cared about, the abandonment. I just wanted to escape. And so I spent a lot of my time trying to leave the current place, so to speak, to find a safe space. I just couldn't find it. Um, And so I had to stop running and stop and turn around and deal with it. This is your reality. And now run into the reality to find a way to come out of it and, and live with it and embrace it. You know, I, I'm remembering uh, w- w- one section of your book, the introduction still, where you were talking about when you finally um, turned around to face the, the sexual abuse in particular, just writing for, writing it all out and then crying and crying and crying. That really moved me a lot because it's so hard to face that and yet you can't go forward unless you do. Um, and so what thing, What do you think, you know, I think a lot about what helps people to go in the direction of, of struggling with their losses, dealing with them and going forward. What do you think was the most, were the most helpful things to you in finally being able to, to face up to those things? I would say I got tired of the pain. Mm. And I don't know if you or anyone who's listening can identify with the layers of pain, pain about my reality, pain about... Um, my family structure, pain about the abuse that had happened to me. Um, I was just, I, I was in so much pain until I just really didn't want to live like that anymore. And so I knew that there had to be something different because I would see other people who were not in that type of pain, but also uh, other yes. people... Yes, who had had situations and they were able to overcome it. And um, I am a person of faith, and so I explored even more um, my faith. Well, God, if you are real, if you are really real in what the Bible says is true, then how can you turn all of this ugliness in my life around and make something good of it? And so I guess my turnaround was I needed to escape the pain. And in in order to escape that pain, I had to face it, and I had to identify with it. And I had to not necessarily accept it as my identity, but accept that, yes, this was the reality. This is your life. And because Mm -hmm. this is your life now, what are you going to do with this? You have choices. Are you going to stay here or are you going to move beyond it? And that's what I decided to do. 
One thing that really uh, stood out to me in your in your story in your book, which I have to say is beautifully told and deeply told, very uh, very honest book, which I appreciate so much, um, is that you were able somehow. You know, you were talking about feeling shame that this was your mother, that the, this 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 thing that your mom was facing you somehow took that on yourself well that sometimes stops up a lot of things but you throughout seem to have held sacred your relationship with god despite being injured in some some religious situations too you somehow kept that separate for yourself, which to me seemed to help you a great deal when you started to try to face things. That's uh, a little remarkable to me that you were able to, because of course a lot of people throw out one thing with the other. Um, how, how did you not do that? Um, how did you keep this idea that God was there for you despite some of the things that were happening, even in his house? You know, I guess that's where we would call um, the sovereignty of God, that some kind of way I had an encounter early enough to know that I could trust this supreme higher being to take care of me. And I can't think of any other way except to say that the core values of my faith, they were instilled in me early. And some, somewhere in there, I just had this, this resolve that God was going to take care of me. I didn't know how. I... Um, did question, so I don't want you to think that I was like, oh, it's going to be great, God is looking. No, I did question, if you love me so much, then why is it so much pain? If you are all-powerful, then how is it that you did not stop all of this? Mm. Or why can't I have a family? Or why is my mother so bound by this, this substance? So I had my seasons of questioning, but it was something in my core beliefs that just knew that God was there. And whatever I was going through, I was going to be able to come out some kind of way with God's help. And that's how I did it. In every situation, I would pray. Um, during the, 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 the the one time that I was raped, I remember lying in the bed, um, crawled up in a fetal position, and saying, God, help me to just get up. That's all I could say. Just help me to get up. But it was God that I went to for help, even after being raped as I um, had just been. And I stayed there with my eyes closed, just asking for the strength to get up. And so that core belief and that faith in a, a higher being, something more powerful than me, is what kept me every day putting one foot in front of the other. And then, too, the hope 
that one day my life would be different. I never gave up hope. I mm. never gave up hope. Even in the, the, the worst situations, I never, ever gave up hope. I just knew it had to be something better. And that kind of coincides with the running. <laughs> I was looking for something uh, <laughs> something different. So I was knocking on the doors. Something had to change. And so that was it. And um, now, hindsight, I see that those lessons are the type of things that I'm able to share with other people. Don't give up hope. It may feel like this is the, the worst day or the last day of your life, but do not give up hope because as long as you have breath in your body, as long as you have your mind, as long as you can just take another step, that's another step to wholeness. You just have to decide not to give up. And I take mm. all those lessons now and, and share those with others that are struggling because it is hard. It is difficult, especially when it's in the house, so to speak, a house of, of um, God where some of these things happen to me. And then that's when I realize that you have good and you have evil. And God didn't make those people do those bad things. It was the choices that they chose to go that route, just like I have choices. We all have choices. And so I couldn't put that all on God. I just had to trust that God would bring me out of it. That seems like a very important difference to be able to to make between the choices that people make and this kind of abiding presence that we can depend on. Uh, I wonder, you know, there, there were quite a few people in your story who were actually very helpful. And mm-hmm. I want, I, I have the idea when I'm working with with clients, for instance, who've had very rough early lives, that if one person seems to get them and seems to, even just one, seems to kind of recognize what's going on a little bit, uh, they have a place to refer to. And I wondered about that with you because it did seem like with all of the destructive people you encountered there were a few who did show you another way did show you there was another way to live mm-hmm. absolutely it, it seemed to me that um, and again I, w- I would take it back to the faith aspect of it wherever I was in whatever situation I was in it was almost as if there was this this angel in a person who came alongside me and said, let me help you. Mm. If it was giving me food when my mother was on the on the streets and uh, we didn't have food, it was the lady down the street who cooked for my brother and my sister and myself. If it was a person who saw me as a teenager and I didn't understand how to take care of myself and... Um, some proper etiquette. It was a lady who brought me in and said, let me show you some things, little girl. (laughs) Let me show you about womanhood. So it was almost as if everywhere I went and every step and every stage of my growth and my development, where I was lacking, God put someone there to help. 
And so I tell the story often that we we can't look at what's in front of us and think that that is the only thing. We have to look around and, and survey the land. I surveyed the land, but it wasn't just me surveying the land. It was those other people that had an interest in this little girl, this teenager, this young adult, who said, you know, let me help you. It's something about you. Let me open this door for you because you need some help. Let me train you over here because you are doing this all wrong. And the flip side of that, I was just humble enough to receive. Absolutely. I didn't fight them. I didn't argue. I didn't always have the best disposition, but at the same time. (laughs) Not surprisingly, (laughs) right? (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. I was an angry little girl. Um, And I was frustrated a lot. I didn't understand. I was confused. And so I think, too, that's where those of us who are in positions where we can make a difference, we have to look beyond ourselves and give. And we have to serve and we have to be willing to open up and say, I'm going to put myself here to help change the trajectory of another person's life. To Mm -hmm. me, that's that love that we can all just give and express in little ways just to help another person have a different outcome. I'm thinking of of one of my daughters, one of her favorite quotes, which is, they tried to bury us, but they didn't know we were seeds. Oh, wow. I love that. Uh, I I love that that line, and I'm really thinking about that as we talk. So let's hear more about, uh, about uh, because I think, you know, the fact is many, many people do find healing out of difficulty and out of difficulty in childhood. And I think childhood difficulty has some real complications because yes. we're, we're biologically geared to think they know better than, you know, and it's all about, it's all our fault and everything, but... Uh, I, I want to just keep talking about how you worked your way out of that and the different uh, avenues you traveled. And listeners, during the break, you can you can go and find links to my website and social media at the Good Grief page at Voice America. And to find Jawanda Parker, go to her Facebook page, Jawanda J. Parker, G-E-W-A-N-D-A, J. Parker. Be back soon. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. Relationship issues? Anxious? Parenting challenges? No more. Learn how to live your best life. Tune into Straight Talk with top psychotherapist, relationship, and anxiety expert, Sandra Reich. In this program, you'll learn how to transform your challenges into effective solutions, whether it's relationships, parenting, anxiety issues, or other life traps that you struggle with. Sandra will show you how to change them and how to live the life of your dreams. Listen every Thursday afternoon at 6 p.m. Eastern Time and 3 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. 
Follow the Voice America Talk Radio Network on Twitter. We're at Voice America TRN. You'll get the latest fix on what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and general happenings that you should know about at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. Now you don't have to miss anything when you're away from your home or office. Just go to twitter.com forward slash Voice America TRN or follow along with us at Voice America TRN, the Voice America Talk Radio Network. We're on the cutting edge of social media. Can you keep up? You are listening to Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. To reach Cheryl or her guest today, please call 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email to Cheryl Jones at weatheringgrief.com. Now, back to Good Grief. Welcome back. This is your host, Cheryl Jones. And I've been talking with Joanne Parker, whose book, Parker, whose book, It Only Hurts When I Can't Run, tells the story of her very difficult childhood and how she began to move towards healing out of that. Um, and we were talking before the break, Joanda, about those things that that even in your child self um, that might have felt, what's the matter with the, me that this is happening? Because kids put themselves in the in the center of the universe and um, knew that there was somewhere else you wanted to be heading and listen to the people who were kind of pointing the direction. Mm-hmm. And uh, kept a hold of them. Didn't didn't let go of those experiences, which I do think a lot of people do. It it often takes my clients, for instance, a long time to remember the people who uh, did meet them or did see them, did help them. It seems to me that you you kept a remarkable connection to those people. I remember growing up um, hearing quite often, do not burn the bridge that helped you to cross over. And although over um, the course of my time and even with my growth and my development and changing um, locations and different things, I always think that this person deposited something in me. And so I... I tend to think that they're just a part of my story. They're just a part of my story. If they had not come, in, in every home that I was in, in every home I was in, I learned something. And so those experiences, experiences, they are the ones who have created who I am today. And so I have taken those bits and pieces and made them a part of who I am. And I embrace that because my story could have turned out a whole lot differently had they not shown up. And like I said before the break, I wasn't always the the best kind of person or the best child, and so I knew that it took a sacrifice for them in whatever it was, if it was feeding me, clothing me, giving me shelter, giving me um, a place just to cry, or just listening to me, that they deposited in, in deposited something into me. So I never want to burn those bridges. The relationship right. may have shifted, but 
I'm very appreciative that they took that time to to pour into my life. Oh, I got the impression reading that you had a sense of them seeing kind of the essential Juanda, if you will, what was underneath what was happening, they, that they saw you in some way, too. That it wasn't just they were ignoring, the, you know, or, or muscling through the difficulty, but also just saying, that, that young woman has something to offer the world. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yes. I, I remember there's a... Um, uh, he's he he has since died, Mr. Clint Wright. I remember him, and he's in the book. And um, this guy was a very successful educator. And all through my life, when I saw him, when I would go to my grandmother's house, he would talk to me and say, "You're going to be somebody, young lady." And he would get down in my face when I was a little girl, and he would say, "You're going to be somebody." And he just kept saying that over and over. And even when I grew up, and I remember going to college and coming back to Polk County, a little small, a small country town in um, the middle of Florida, and getting a job. And he was the super, the assistant superintendent. And he was the one who um, actually did my placement. And he said to me then, I told you, you were going to be mm. somebody. Uh, but uh. The, yes, the thing is, when I first met him, it was the 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 time that I had been beaten mercifully by my mother and put mm. into the system and sent to Polk County. That I met him, and here I am, a broken little girl. Um, being sent to my grandmother, and this man spoke life into me. Like what you said about your your daughter, they tried, her quote. Yeah, they tried to bury me. They didn't know I was a seed. Exactly. And so he put a seed of hope in me, and he helped me to know that although that I was in pain at that time, that I was going to grow up and be someone. And I and I just knew it. I didn't know who that someone was going to be, but I just <laughs> knew it. And so that's how I've always thought. And even now, there are times when I may feel down or feel sad. He may flash across my, my mind, or I might look at my journals. I'm a big advocate of journaling. And it's like, nope, this is only a comma in your story. You haven't gotten to the to the period yet or or the exclamation point you're still in process you are going to be somebody whatever that somebody is mm-hmm. <laughs> so it's not an end point yet because I'm still in process and that's how I look at it we have to have people who can help us to get to the next place to step over that hurdle and to and to cross that barrier that's in front of us at the moment. That's why I never gave up hope. And that's why I keep thinking over and over and over that as long as we have hope, then we can make it. Which to me just means leaving the future to the future because uh, we don't know how it's going to come out. 
We can't know how it's going to come out. So hope is just, I don't know how it's going to come out sometimes. Mm-hmm. You know, I was really, um, I started laughing out loud when I read in your book, um, you said the names have been changed to protect the guilty. Um, mm-hmm. <laughs> but on the other hand, um, there was a lot of compassion I felt a lot of understanding for what, especially the people very close to you, like your mother, how they ended up where they ended up. Um, And uh, I felt I knew her, not just the addict her, but the her her, the essence of her pretty well by the end of the book. And I I wanted to read a paragraph from the book that... um, touched me a lot about your mother um and i i think i got that she was actually not in terrible shape in your very early life that that took a while to develop um Mm -hmm. and before that she was your mother and and someone you quite adored so Mm -hmm. here's the part that stuck out to me binta uh, you called your mother binta yes Yes, in the book, yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Binta's favorite thing was taking photos of what she called edge people. One was a tall, thin African-American man with a coal black skin and long dreadlocks. He was usually walking very fast down the street near the farmer's market, sometimes crossing traffic-choked 14th Street in the middle of the block. He looked old when I was a child, but seeing Binta's photos of him years later, I realized he was probably in his 40s, about my age now. When he was near us, I stared because of the dress he always wore. I realize now, while still odd for a man, it wasn't a dress exactly. It was a caftan with long sleeves and blue stitching around the neck and too long for him, or started out that way, so that the hem was soiled from dragging along the ground and randomly tattered about four inches up, leaving bottom looking fringed. Once Binta caught him, standing still in front of us and raised her camera in his direction. As she did so, he straightened his posture, put his hand on one hip, raised his head almost too far back and turned to the side, not looking directly at her. As I stood there in awe of his imposing presence, I heard the familiar camera shutter click. Before she took a second shot, she asked him, that's a lovely outfit. May I take your photo as if she hadn't already done so? He nodded his head up and down. Now looking directly at her, he let his arms fall slack at his side saying, it's linen. The first pose is what I saw Prince of later in life. I'm in such a lovely moment with your mom and how I was, I was, it was kind of poignant that you're, te- you're telling me in the book, she appreciated and photographed edge people, what she called edge people. And then I guess we'd have to say she was an edge person. Mm-hmm. Kind of on later on, on the fringe. And um, sort of carrying both those images of her had a real impact on me. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. My, I, I, I did not know how much my mother had imprinted herself on me until after she died. And what I mean by that is a lot of my characteristics, a lot of the creativity that I have, a lot of my caring um, nature, 
it's all from her. And even down to the, the that um, paragraph that you just you read, my mother never, ever, in all of my life, I have never heard her gossip. I've never heard or seen her judge anyone. And before she was actually one of those edge people, she helped every single person. Even if she had a dollar, she would break that up into quarters and nickels to make sure that she helped people. A lot of my forgiveness, she would tell me, even when I was so angry, when I found out the truth about her addiction and um, the foster care system and how she had been mistreated, she would say to me constantly, you have to let it go. If I can let it go, then you have to let it go. She forgave people that created problems between our relationship that even after she'd forgiven them, I was still angry. (laughs) Yeah. And not understanding. But my point is, my mom was, it, it was the picture perfect mother in her truest self. And that's why I understand addiction, because the person that I hated was the addiction, not necessarily her, because the addiction created another person who I was not familiar with and who I could not understand. And that's where that same compassion and love that she showed me early on, I was able then to forgive and try to understand her and then extend that back to her. So it's almost as if our lives came full circle Mm. completely. And I'm so proud that she's my mom. I was so proud that she was able to um, give me, so to speak, permission to share some of these very, very, very deep places in her story. It was my story, but basically it kind of showed a lot of her. And she said to me, it's your story. I can't argue with that. I don't like all of it but I can't argue with it, and I'm so proud that you took the time and the courage to share your story. Now, make it worth it. Don't just put your business out there. Make it worth it. And so that's how I look at her. Yes, she had her issues, but by far she's my my best hero. By far she's the one who has taught me survival and a lot of people's skills a lot of spirituality that I did not learn from what I would call normal people because she truly was an edge edge person. (laughs) Well, you know, what I like to say about compassion is the people we approve of are easy to have compassion for. (laughs) You know, (laughs) we're we're really practicing compassion if we have compassion for people that that we, off the face of it, judge or we're angry or we're you know <laughs> the mm-hmm. hard ones <laughs> so she yes. had a high, high level of ability in that area huh mm-hmm. yeah I totally agree <laughs> and and I wonder if because of course we can 
um, you know, there's a there's a great saying: uh, "Let people back into your into your heart, but not your house necessarily." Mm-hmm. And uh, I wonder if she maybe that led to not being quite careful enough with herself or uh, letting people too close who were harmful mm-hmm. to her. Do you think yes, that happened for her? I think that happened to her over and over and over again. And I think because her heart was so big, it was broken multiple times. And that was part of our struggle because I would be uh, like, um, don't talk to him. Cut him off. <laughs> you know, that kind of thing. Let right. Let it go. And she would say things like, no, you can't do that. You have to. That's not what God would want. And, um, again, she was the one who taught me a lot about forgiveness and second chances and third and fourth and fifth chances. And even now, some of my triggers and some of the the areas where I struggle is I see her in my head, forgive. And I'm like, oh, no, this person, no, you can't. This is my boundary. (laughs) You know, and so, yeah, I see that. She she wasn't good at setting those boundaries. The good part for me, I've had some some more training in that area to to kind of set up some different type boundaries. But yeah, I think so. She wanted to be there for as many people as she could, and so much so, I think she loved people more than she loved herself because she mm-hmm. was able to take good care of her emotional state. And, and if she wasn't able to, what I would say, rid herself of those demons in her past, if you, you know, the book starts not right. with her, but with how she grew up and yes. all of those things that she wasn't able to tackle. And so her escape um, ended up being one that was very detrimental her I think that's an important message to get out there that forgiveness and compassion doesn't mean no boundaries so Mm. let's go to our second break and when we come back I really want to talk about the work you're doing and how you've taken your own experience and put it into the world and listeners you can go find me at good grief uh, the good grief page or at my website weatheringgrief.com and to find Jawanda Parker, go to her Facebook page, Jawanda, G-E-W-A-N-D-A-J Parker. Back after the break. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health & Wellness. Explore the power of natural healing with Howard Strauss. Join us each week for an informative program that will help you learn effective healing methods using natural remedies. Howard's guests include top researchers, authors, and experts who will share their views on a variety of natural products and healing methods that really work. Tune in to The Power of Natural Healing with Howard Strauss, Mondays at 11 a.m. Pacific Time, 2 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. 
we're making it easier to listen to the Voice America Talk Radio Network wherever you go. In addition to listening live, you can check out information about your favorite talk show hosts, discover new talk show personalities, add shows to your list of favorites, and listen to all our show archives on demand. All from your iPhone, BlackBerry, or Android. Download it from the Apple App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market, and get ready to tune in. The Voice America mobile app, powered by Aircast. Real Life Solutions, Voice America Health and Wellness. You are listening to Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. To reach Cheryl or her guest today, please call 1-866-472-5792. That's 1-866-472-5792. You may also send an email to Cheryl Jones at weatheringgrief.com. Now, back to Good Grief. Welcome back to Good Grief. I'm here with Jawanda Parker, the author of It Only Hurts When I Can't Run, the story of her early life and the abuse and difficulty and uh, I guess we could say chaos of her early life, but also a very, very hopeful book. Um, I I knew at the end of the book, oh my gosh, she's, well, all the way through the way that you were able to share your story told me it had gone somewhere, that you had mm-hmm. been able to face things and come to terms with them because nobody can write about their painful experiences the way that you did unless they've, you know, dived deep, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um but what has happened out of that is uh, a lot of of um, different kinds of work, I guess. And I wonder if you can share some of that. What what do you think has come out of those early experiences and informed the way that you work in your life now? I would say primarily um, just being able to be a image of overcoming. And what I mean by that is an image of overcoming if you see how I grew up and you see that I was able to escape the system, one, the foster care system, two, being a child of um, a mother who was addicted to drugs, and so I did not go down that path. I was able to be educated. I um, hold a full-time job, actually. <laughs> I work a lot. Um, and being able and is to... And is that in your ministry, or do you work at something else as well? I do. That, that's, the, that's the interesting thing. I have been bivocational most of my adult life. And so, um, and I'm saying bivocational and then trivocational, if that's such a word, because I started out being a public school teacher. And so I've had, um, this is my 23rd year in the public school system teaching. And then I went into the ministry on the ministry track and um, am a United Methodist pastor. I have scaled down to one congregation. I actually pastor cross-culturally, which is a totally different um, 
uh, ram that I just know God has allowed me to cross over because we address some of those areas, too, of diversity and being able to connect and bridging the gap. And then the work that I'm doing with the Hope and Healing, which is my ministry, what I would call my baby, that comes and has been birthed out of my pain and out of my life so that we can take that to the world. And how I initially started doing it was with the, the mentoring program, um, mentoring young girls and basically just giving back what some of those things we talked about earlier, how people helped me that I would come along these young girls in um, distressed situations, not all foster care, but those who had issues in school. I got a group of ladies, and we started mentoring young girls. From that, I noticed that it was a, a huge group of women who were still struggling, struggling in self-esteem, self-worth, uh, marriages, those that had been sexually abused, that still were struggling, um, trying to come to grips with some of that, the whole issue of anger, bitterness, and um, the rejection, the abandonment. And so from there I started doing um, some basic teaching and then um, some Bible studies, some women's groups, and then just writing. And then um, taking both of those, combining them to the humanitarian um, works that we've begun to do. And at one point, I was supporting an orphanage in Haiti and one in Africa. And um, we had to pull that back just because of all of everything that has been happening, but still supporting um, people now locally in 2017. We're going to relaunch and really streamline to helping in the foster care system. That is going to be my lunch as we go into it. Um, and then doing the writing still with self-help, self-help books um, and, and getting those finished. And um, then the seminars and the conferences. I did a conference on um, called Being Made Whole, and mm-hmm. we'll be bringing that back in 2017. So really it's a lot of training helping and serving and outlining how these different components can help people live a holistic life. I'm very interested in in what just happened that you started by saying, well, basically I show people you can get somewhere different, uh, which which I'd call the, the been there factor. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, uh, uh after I lost my my wife, uh, that kicked in. You know, people, if they were coming to talk to me about grief, they could feel I'd been there, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, it mm-hmm. makes it a different experience. But also, you're working very hard and doing a lot of things. And I know that you have a, a little child yourself, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, your, your life must be a bit hectic at the moment. At the moment, my life is so full until (laughs) I 
I don't know what to do with it. Um, <laughs> part of that is self-care. I am a proponent of self-care. And so I have dates with myself, and I mean, I, I guard my self-care. I guard my boundaries. Because at this stage in my life, this is what is happening. And I'm okay with that because I know, again, that it will not always be this way. And so when little Adira came, I had to stop a lot of what I was doing and streamline it and refocus. And so really, um, about a good year and a half, I would say really two years, um, going through the pregnancy in Adira, that we've kind of not done a whole lot simply because now she is the priority because I need to be very present for her. And so that means in order for me to be my best self, I have to take care of me so that I can take care of her and give her the best mother that I could possibly be and then look at how all of that can can fuel the passion of serving others. And so that's why I'm saying in 2017, we are relaunching a lot of what we've done, but it will totally look different um, as we do it in 2017, something that will work within um, the boundaries of self-care, the boundaries of taking care of, of my first priority, home first, <laughs> and then the world. I almost hear you saying self first, home second, the world third. That it without without taking care of yourself, the rest can't quite happen. Would that be fair to say? I would you say know? that is very fair. It's just like on an airplane they say put the oxygen mask on you first. And then you can put it on the next person. And I think that whole self care is emotional wholeness, it is mental wholeness, it is fun and relaxation, it's the spirituality piece of it, it's those boundaries, it is making sure that your life is lined up in a way so that you can be your best self. And I've I've come to know that there are some things that I just cannot do anymore. (laughs) And as Mm -hmm. much as I would love to, I just can't. Can't. And I'm... I'm okay with it. I I think that's just such a uh, such a vital message. I actually just read a book that one of my previous guests has just written. She's going to release it soon on self care, and um, you know it's a long book because uh, there's there's. Uh, stuff to say about every area of our lives in that way. Are we working in a way that supports our best self? Are we playing in a way that does? How are we handling our finances? How are we handling our friendships? You know, every area we're either supporting ourselves well or not. And it takes a a lot of concentration, yeah? Yes. Oh, yeah. It takes a lot of concentration. It takes a lot of boundaries. I am, oh, my gosh, I, I, I had to set boundaries in place. I had to because if I didn't, then I would just be so all over the place, just scattered all over the place. 
And so I do. I have boundaries. When I go home in the evenings, I give Adira two or three hours. By 7.30, she's in the bed. That is our boundary. Uh-huh. <laughs> I, you I need that 7.30 to 9.30 time. <laughs> yes, yes. But when I'm with her, that is her time. And so I don't do phone calls. I don't do ministry. I'm on the floor. We're playing. She's all over me. You know, we're doing whatever she wants. That is her time. And when I'm at work, that's that time. And so you have to compartmentalize your life in a way so that it works for you. Same thing with the finances. Same thing with sleep. When my body says sleep, I don't care how much I have on the table that I have to get done. I know that if I do not get the sleep, I cannot effectively handle the work. When I am pastoring, I know that if I have a parishioner in front of me, I can't have my cell phone there. I can't be thinking about something else. Adira, she kind of just busts into all of that because she doesn't understand those boundaries, but... (laughs) <laughs> That's what we're working on. <laughs> so She'll figure that out eventually if you yeah, keep reinforcing exactly. them. <laughs> you so, know, I, um, I have... I have this um, thought always that you can learn by having uh, good uh, modeling, someone models for you, but you also can learn by seeing the trouble people get into when they don't. You know, for instance, your mom got into a lot of trouble because she didn't take care of herself, and it sounds to me like you've you've learned a mighty lesson from that. No, oh, yeah. Um, that, that's got to be a priority. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's that's a that's a mighty thing to share with uh, all the people you mentor as well. Mm-hmm. That sometimes oh, yeah. you're ju- you're not available. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> so not available. Not right yeah. now. You know, yeah. I wanted to I I wanted to um, end just with a little paragraph from your book. Uh, it ends when you leave for college, which I thought was so fitting. And I just want to read that. And thank you for being here today, Jawanda. Go find so Jawanda at, um, at Facebook, Jawanda J. Parker. As the train picked up speed, my body rocked from side to side in spite of the train's forward running motion. I fell asleep but was jerked away in the middle of a senseless dream or a nightmare, really, that the train was going down the middle of a multi-lane highway. Get out of the way! From the middle of the traffic jam, Binta's disembodied face appeared with eyes too big for her thin face looking straight at me. Almost awake now, but in a dreamlike state, I thought, You can't touch me now, sister, because I'm running to see the king, and to perish is not in me. The train's wheels ran for me, headlong down the tracks, slowly rocking my smiling face to sleep. This has been Good Grief with Cheryl Jones. I look forward to being with you again next week for another meaningful conversation. Thank you so much for joining us for Good Grief. Please come back next Wednesday at 5 p.m. Eastern Time, 2 p.m. Pacific Time for another edition featuring your host, Cheryl Jones, on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. Have a meaningful week. Abre mi corazón.